the best thing that leaders can do at the moment to bring other people along is sell a good vision that there is a light at the end of this tunnel and make people believe that. Welcome to episode three of season three of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Ammer. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. On today's episode, we're sharing our discussion with Dana Kova-Segal, who describes herself as a rebellious humanitarian and wears many hats, but who focuses on change at the intersection of culture, society and politics. But before we introduce our interview with Dana, we've had a bit of a break over Easter and have been eating chocolate, playing Easter Bunny, baking. We've just been discussing how much baking we've both been doing with our respective families. So Zoe, would you like to tell us about your best egg? Okay, so I have a confession to make. I'm not actually a massive fan of Easter eggs. I like chocolate, but I'm not really into Easter eggs. That's a shocking admission. Cream egg? No, no. I love baking, but I just find cream eggs that bit too sweet. You're laughing at me now. I'm laughing just because it was just, I asked the question just because I wanted to show off that Daff had bought me a chocolate orange Easter egg. And that was, um, so my wife had bought me a chocolate orange Easter egg, which was just a revelation. I'm finding out this year, 2021 is the year that Paul decides that chocolate orange or orange chocolate is just the best thing ever. So that was mine. But you also, we also compared notes before Easter on on text messaging on Instagram of our Simnel cake bakes. Yeah, that was a good one. I have to say that my marzipan did come out quite thick. I probably didn't roll it to perhaps the optimal level of thinness, but yeah, it was very tasty. I do love a bit of marzipan. And the top tip for your Simnel cake for next year is rather than putting the layer through the middle, chop it into chunks and put the chunks in the mixture as well. So then you get a bit of marzipan with every bite. It's, um, yeah, yeah, for marzipan lovers, there's good advice for you. Um, But there have also been a number of things happening in the tech news that we wanted to talk about. And uh, just before Easter, that... um, that naughty Nicholas Clegg put a post out. Well, I say naughty. I think it's it's really divided people. And I just wanted to get your take on, on A, you know, what he said and, and B, what you think it means. Yeah, nice gear change there from Marzipan to, to Nick Clegg. Probably <laughs> not two things that have been in the, the same uh, sentence that often. But yes, good, goodness me, this caused quite a, a ruction on, on social media. And I have to say that I can, can see why. It's completely baffling, very long essay about why the, the problems of, of Facebook seem to be very much about the, the users rather than the platform. Uh, and there's a number of reasons why I'm completely mystified by this. Firstly, how did it actually get past their comms people? Uh, secondly, why did Nick Clegg think that it was a, a good thing to write? And thirdly, definitely a con- concern about how out of touch Facebook seemed to be to have put this out there. Yeah, well, that was my takeaway. It's so sort of tone deaf but it's not surprising because I think it's the same with Twitter at the moment isn't it the Twitter and Facebook seem to be um, completely ignorant of the way that uh, their users and the general public actually 
think about them the public perception of the, both those platforms is is sort of at an all-time low i think there's a huge issue that they have around hate and discrimination at the moment particularly coming to the fore in the uk at least and you know on a, another sporting note zoe we've just been talking about sports because you always try to make me talk about sport but this is coming through from a sporting level because uh, footballers are experiencing um racism on and, and abuse on the platforms after the matches when they haven't played well and all that sort of stuff so yeah, the, the general sort of disconnect between what the social platforms say and what uh, their users actually think of them just seems to be, it seems to be just entirely disconnected, which is completely ironic, given given their platforms are all about connectivity and connection. Absolutely. And you've got to wonder about the different perspectives then that are represented on their leadership teams if they have become this out of touch with reality I mean I, I think it's had a huge backlash this piece from from what I can see it's had very widespread press coverage it was all over Twitter uh, and it didn't seem to go down well at all and I also worry that there'll be people out there who don't really understand tech uh, who now seem to think that well yes algorithms are the joint responsibility of users and, and the platform and the fact is they're not they're clearly defined and set by the people who run platforms and they can't outsource responsibility for them to users that's just bizarre and I also like the fact that they would make it available uh, make a, a sort of a view available where you could switch them on and switch them off which begs the question why they need to be in there in the first place which is probably um, all to do with the platforms are only free because they're able to sell a huge amount of advertising to the people that are using them so yeah that was one thing that was sort of huge and on the agenda before uh, before Easter and you also shared uh, a piece with me um, just today about the, the PwC survey so it was a report into the future of work. It's called the Hopes and Fears 2021 report. And some really interesting findings here into uh, some hopes and fears around automation. Uh, so six in 10 of the respondents were concerned about machines taking over their jobs. And it's just quite interesting that people are so openly thinking about the impact of automation on their professions and, and their careers. So uh, this is all obviously happening in the context of a time when people are talking a lot about the future of work and what's going to happen to roles and responsibilities and what their organisations will look like over the next few years. So this is a, a report that's definitely worth looking at if you're beginning to think about what my organisation might look like over the long term. Yeah, and I was reading through it and saw that only 9% of people said that they wanted to go back to their traditional work environment full time, which chimes in nicely with a number of different discussions that, that we've had. And uh, I won't go into it in too much detail, but there was a great post that I saw last week by a friend in contact of mine, Shimreet James, who did a really good piece for uh, the Henley Forum. And it's all on LinkedIn, so we'll put a link in, in there. But what she did in that piece was she talked about this idea that we um, are at a re reflection point. So this, the, the reflection point in a, in a movie or in a book is roughly around the halfway point where the main protagonist sort of looks at the state of affairs, reflects on his or her life 
and then makes a decision that takes them towards the end of the book or the movie. And she says that, you know, we're, we're at this point in time where there's a, a real sort of reflection on, on you know, the way we go forwards and what we learn from and keep from the past and what we need to do to make those stepping stones to the future. And it was a really timely reminder about the, the sort of the three horizon model about now, the far future and, and, and where the steps that we can put, we can take to get there. I think what was clear or what's becoming sort of clear to me is that there's a distinct lack of unanimity here across the PwC piece and all sorts of discussions where organisations seem to be muddling through. There's no sort of government-led or not at least not a very audible cry from the government around how we ought to approach the return to work. And everyone's doing it a little bit differently. Everyone's sort of agreed that there's this hybrid model. What the hybrid model looks like is different whether you work for PwC or whether you work for your local small business. So I think it was it's just interesting to, to, to look at it in, in that context. And then finally, there was another story um, in the last uh, 20 24 hours about Microsoft's major acquisition, but they've just bought an artificial intelligence firm, Nuance, who I suppose a US based, so it's probably Nuance, the people responsible for developing Apple's Siri. Um, and there's a lot of stuff in the, the press about how they think they might use it. They might integrate it with all of the Microsoft platforms. So it's basically a speech recognition software that does dictation, enables dictation and things like that. But it's the biggest acquisition Microsoft have made since they bought LinkedIn. And it seems like Microsoft in a very acquisition high mode at the moment where they've been on this rise, I think, for the last seven or eight years, going through and acquiring different organizations to build out their their platform, becoming more and more a fixture of that office of the future, I think, where, where we're all deemed to be returning soon. So we spoke to Dana at the beginning of March 2021 and enjoyed a multifaceted discussion about what digital actually means, what are the changes we want to see, and how do we develop confident digital leaders to lead the charge to a more inclusive and diverse digital leadership. So we are delighted to welcome to the podcast today one of the people in the sector who I admire enormously, Dana Carver-Segal. So she's a senior partner consultant with MC Consulting. She also wears many, many different hats as a consultant with decision science, a director for Adapt for Arts, deputy director of the National Arts Fundraising School and a fundraising director for the Activate Collective, as well as an award-winning co-chair of Emergency Exit Arts, Chartered Institute of Fundraising, Cultural Sector Network, a curator of the arts summit as well so as you can see here she's multi-talented and indeed multi-hyphenated working in lots of different roles right across the social sector Dana welcome to the podcast thank you so much for having me I'm so chuffed to be here you have hosted some of my favorite people in the sector so I'm getting a little bit of imposter syndrome thinking wow look at me sitting alongside people like Paul and Darshan and Rodri and stuff so yeah thank you so much for having me Oh, well, we're thrilled to have you here. And in fact, we're, we're honoured to have you here because I've heard so much amazing stuff about you from many different people. And we're really excited about the conversation here today. So thank you for making time for us in your very busy diary. And speaking of your very busy diary, after that 20 minute introduction, um, <laughs> I'd love to hear all about these different roles you have across the set, all these different hats and yeah. what, what you do and, and why you do it and how's it going. Thank you so much. Yeah, I never make for an easy introduction, do I? But it's funny, I was thinking a lot about why I've ended up working in the way that I do. And I think there's sort of three elements to it. So 
the first isn't necessarily the cheeriest one. So I think like a lot of peers, I starting to freelance and work at quite a young age. I started freelancing when I was 25. And I think a lot of people that I've spoken to who also made that leap quite early on in their careers have done so kind of from a negative place, you know, where maybe workplaces haven't been the best environments to enable us to thrive as individuals and make the changes that we need to make. So there's sort of that impetus that I think drove me to freelancing quite early on. But then that's obviously opened up opportunities for me to collaborate in all the different ways that I do, which is very, very exciting and something that I realize I need a lot of, you know, so even though I am working independently, I love to work with people. I think the second aspect of it is really what you said in the pursuit of kind of social justice and equality. It's not tied to any particular cause or even a particular sphere or sector. So I think that also really informs my approach. So being able to apply parts of myself to, to different things to put pressure on here or unlock something here or, you know, find a bit of funding for this thing there means that I get to maybe contribute to the overall picture of social justice and change. And that's why I say that I tend to work at the intersections of culture, society and politics, because I think if you look at history, those are probably the three key ingredients that change things for better or for worse, actually. So I quite like to invest in and work in projects that are sitting in the middle of those things that are using those forces for good or attempting to change those forces for good. And then the third aspect is that even though, you know, I operate as a, a consultant and a, as a trainer, I am a fundraiser and I love to get involved in the actual fundraising as well as the strategy side. So it's a big part of my desire to be really authentic that I don't feel like my consultancy is really legitimate if I haven't actually written a bid of late or launched a campaign or asked a major donor for a gift in the space I really love to do that so that actually I'm improving and developing my consultancy offer as I go along so those are probably the things that have ended up making me do what I do now actually is a bit of a positive but also a bit of negative in there in terms of of what that means but I was trying to think about how to explain the work but let's do kind of culture society politics as the theme so from the cultural side actually over the last two years I've really shifted my focus to work on people with lived experiences working to address those challenges because I think to me that's one of the things that I could do as a consultant to live up those values of inclusivity and start to redress some of the imbalances. Some of the awesome people that I've had the chance to work with are people like the vacuum cleaner, who is a, an artist who's been through the mental health care system and is using that experience to develop interventions that will ultimately reform the way mental health is treated. Not necessarily. He's kind of saying, you know what, mental health awareness is here we are aware of it the issue is we don't have the systems and structures in place to treat it effectively so a lot of his interventions focus on that working with a fantastic organization called Centrala in Birmingham who use culture and kind of community-based projects to advance the place and space of Central and Eastern European migrants in the UK a group of migrants who've had a really 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 tough time over the last 10 years and are increasingly so having a really tough time in the UK. So just like to kind of focus on cultural organisations who are really making an impact in that sense. And then, as you mentioned earlier as well, that do that through training on the National Arts Fundraising School. And I've done a fair bit of international work with cultural organisations. I've had the chance to go to some pretty amazing places like Cuba and South Africa and Zimbabwe, as well as working with European-based organisations in Estonia, Ireland, into Australia to work with cultural organizations out there so yeah I feel like I've got good scope on the international side and the cultural space as well which is great and then on the society and politics side 
Um, all my work through MC Consulting tends to be with quite a lot of the big charities like MSF, UNICEF, RNLI. And then on the politics side at the moment, I'm focusing in on the Activate Collective, uh, which is an organisation founded by an incredible woman called Vanessa Pine and also by Sophie Walker, who many people will have known as the founder of the Women's Equality Party. It's a brand new fund they've set up to support female candidates, specifically women of colour, disabled women and working class women who are standing for election. So nice kind of broad portfolio of work there. That's amazing. I really relate to that desire to have you know have a number of different pans burning as it were because then all of these things really enrich each other don't they and there's more that you can offer because you can sort of see the connections between all of these different problems and things and I think that's brilliant that whole point about wanting to be on, on the ground as well so being able to, to to work really closely with people so that you can see the impact of the work you're doing and to be able to not be too far from the, the end user and the donor I guess yeah. that sort of leads us on really nicely to my next question I know we were talking a bit about this before we started the interview about how you've seen leadership change during the pandemic and you describe this shift from the kind of emergency sort of firefighting mindset and um, through to all oh, these longer term questions about your strategy and where you're going and what the future looks like I mean how do you think charity leadership has changed during mm. the pandemic such a weird question and it's it, not a weird question it's it's a weird space to be in because it doesn't feel like it's over yet we have had no time to process it before we're trying to figure out what's changed but having said that I think one of the things that I immediately noticed was it felt as though everybody was going into one of three modes it's that kind of fight flight or freeze thing I think there were a lot of organizations that fought the idea of the pandemic because they were in denial about how their services might change or the way that they work might change and I just thought it was very interesting when there were some leaders who were saying this is a temporary thing, things will resume back to normal, nothing needs to change too much. And it felt like they were fighting what was actually just the world saying things are changing in a really big way. I think the freeze thing was also really common. I think a lot of leaders, and and I, I don't mean to be overly critical of my fellow trustees, but a lot of boards have been defined as being, you know, not taking any action over this period of time not really implementing any changes and not showing or displaying the leadership that I think has been needed by our sector so I think a lot of inertia has happened but that inertia maybe is just from a lack of confidence or a lack of skills or a lack of effective communication in those boards and then I think in terms of the organization who who have flown throughout this there's just clearly some qualities that have enabled them to be one of those organizations that have flown like this idea of, you know, as we talked about just before, the rapid decision making, their ability to trust each other, to communicate quickly and to make decisions really quickly and effectively, which enabled them to take advantage of certain opportunities, whether that's fundraising or pivoting their services to be online. I think organisations that have flown also include organisations and leaders who have been putting beneficiaries and supporters first, you know, organizations that have had a culture of inclusivity of consultation of keeping in touch and stewarding people properly have also flown throughout this because they've just continued to operate in that mode that was already a part of their culture and then finally I think again leaders that have flown in this period are people who've just kind of kept it very human as in 
not just sitting around scenario planning, but acting out on those scenarios as well and making sure that strategic conversations with their teams, whether that's the leaders or the people on the ground, are happening outside of that boardroom, not just within a boardroom setting or within a board Zoom setting, however it is now. So I think there's just certain qualities of leadership that have developed over this period those being some of those that have enabled organizations to thrive but on the whole I would say that's maybe a third of a wider sector that's had a real struggle with its leadership over the last year year and a half as this has all emerged. I love the way that you characterize those three different behaviors of of leaders during this time so Imagine I'm a trustee sitting on a a board where I really want us to fly as we go through into this next phase of the pandemic and the recovery. What can I do to to bring other people with me, other leaders, so that we all fly as we go through this really critical moment? I think there's probably the first thing is, I mean, I'm a big believer in planning. It's kind of all I do. It's what I support other people to do. So there has to be a good, clear, inclusive planning process that needs to happen. You know, scenarios do need to be modelled. Different situations have to be explored and tested out and developed. But at the same time, I think the best thing that leaders can do at the moment to bring other people along is sell a good vision that there is a light at the end of this tunnel and make people believe that and display and share good well-being, good practice. So, you know, encourage people to take the time that they need in meetings to stand up look away to you know encourage people to get off their screens you know display those bits of kind of well-being leadership that need to be seen and then I think the third thing is probably about again it slightly comes back to the sort of communication or consultation aspect of it who's not in the room that needs to have a say or an opinion on what's being decided and why hasn't that been the case until now and what can you do to change and rectify that so I think there's broadly speaking there's a sort of well-being type thing there's a an inclusivity who's not in the room type thing and then also just having some sort of planning but also a vision of a more hopeful time because I just think people need a bit of hope right now I really really do as much as they need answers that they're mostly looking for some sort of hope or some sort of positivity that there is an end to this I completely agree with that because I I think that's where this this strength in our sector of leaders who tell a a damn good story really needs to come into its own doesn't it because that's the engine that's going to create this optimism and this passion and this motivation about the the difference that we can make as we go into this new period when everyone's sort of tired and burnt out and been through through a lot speaking of that what fundraising trends have you seen during this time and are there any particular trends that you anticipate over the the next six to 12 months I think one of the things that's been really notable throughout this pandemic which has been and felt very different it felt like it, it feels like it's catapulted something forward is the blurring of lines between social good brands and social good charities. So there's a big rise in full purpose brands, which means it's interesting because as people, we can do good by buying. So, you know, if we're at home, we're buying eco products or just various other ways that we've been able to be activated to make us feel like we're doing good in the world. It's a very interesting, I think, challenge for charities, but ultimately charities are able to report back on an impact 
So I think what I've seen a lot of over the last year is a focus on supporter experience and a focus on stewardship of supporters, because that is where charities are uniquely placed. They can report back on the impact that those people have made by making a donation in a way that a brand can't once you've bought its product. So I think there should be more and more focus on that. And I get a bit of a question or a provocation to the sector that I've got might be, how can we turn the idea of supporter experience into a proper stream of work, almost like UX or UI? What's a kind of version of that where we are cultivating, we're developing talent in this area that is strongly linked to the design principles that underpin a lot of our tech for good world in that way. So that's kind of a, a thing that I'm thinking about. But I think a lot of a lot of organizations focused in on the people that had already supported them, what's their experience like, how are we reporting back and thanking them. So that's definitely big trend number one. And I think that will continue to be a strong focus over the next six to 12 months for organizations. I think there's also, unfortunately, a lot that's gone slightly backwards. Again, because particularly in the cultural sector, just I'll use that as an example, there was a lot of investment made in the cultural sector to build their financial resilience by developing earned income opportunities, whether that's selling tickets for a show or developing paid for workshops in order to reduce their reliance on grants. Obviously, the pandemic's hit that in a huge way, which means that a lot of organizations that had done a lot of work on becoming more self-sustaining have now had to fall back on and become more reliant on grants again, which means that we're seeing statutory grants become really competitive. We're seeing applications to trust and foundations become even more competitive than before, again, because there's just so many more organizations trying for that stream of funding. So I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the bid writing processes, systems and pipelines for organizations over the next six to 12 months, especially when you couple that with the fact that a lot of these foundations will have had serious hits on their endowments and their investments, which means they might have smaller pots to play with over the next three to five year period. So kind of reduced funding plus increased competition means that funders are going to really start thinking about and be much more rigorous and demanding of the organizations to be delivering persuasive narratives. So I think that's kind of trend number two, which isn't necessarily a positive trend, but I think is one that's important to think about, which means, you know, where are we left when it comes to the power of people, people power and that more individual giving side of things. I don't know if it's just me and the people that I've been working with, but there seems to be much more of a desire to use more mobilization techniques that kind of better integrate a bit of campaigning and fundraising I don't necessarily feel like the skills are there in our sector yet but I feel that the desire is more there and people are realizing that it can be a very impactful way not just for organizations to raise funds but also to communicate their values and maybe push back on some of the narratives that we were talking about earlier in terms of challenges maybe from the government or from other institutions that need to be rectified in order to correct the social imbalances and injustices that we have have. So I think those are probably the three things that I've noticed the most over this period that are really influencing the thinking and the work that I'm doing with people in the sector. Thank you. Those, those are super helpful. And drawing on that a, a bit more, what are your hopes and fears for the sector as we emerge from the pandemic? And what role does digital play in both of those things? Mm-hmm. All my hopes and fears are connected. I realized as I was mapping this out. I mean, my huge hope 
my biggest hope is that no one ever has any unnecessary demand on people's in-person's presence anymore. Like, unless it's absolutely needed and crucial, we can work in different ways. And obviously digital plays a huge role in this because it is the facilitator of a different way of networking, a different way of organizing, a different way of working. And I know I'm probably saying this at a time where people feel really zoomed out, where people feel like they miss being together in person. I'm not saying that we should ever scrap all of that but this idea that job roles have to be tied to specific geographies etc especially when they're specialists that are not uh, dependent on physically being anywhere that just needs to disappear tomorrow because it just doesn't need to be like that I suppose another hope I've got is that leaders and trustees really plug and invest in the gaps that arose in their organizations from the pandemic so rather than brush it all under the carpet and again I think digital is integral to this you know this from the production of the digital skills report that there are still huge huge gaps knowledge gaps skills gaps in organizations that need to be plugged now more than ever so I really hope that people start to invest more in digital infrastructure as we define it which kind of brings on to my next which was about the perception of digital and I think part of the digital fear that gets reported by things like the digital skills report is it's as though it's this separate thing to real life there's like the digital world and then there's the real world over here and COVID has shown us that that's just not the case like we live in a hybrid world where digital can absolutely be quite a normal part of life and actually in its best applications digital can really enhance real life in different and new ways so My other hope is that I really hope people understand that digital isn't just a thing, you know, depending on the situation, digital is a skill, digital might be a tool, digital might be a process, digital might be a mindset, digital might be an output, might be an outcome, like there's so much more that we need to understand about this idea of digital and break it down in a way so it stops feeling really alien to people as this concept. It can be so much more than just a thing that my organization does or doesn't do. And that's my probably biggest hope for the sector, that people stop saying whether they do digital or not. I would echo that outside of the charity world as well. In Mm -hmm. fact, I'm having I'm having a conversation with a business with my business coach at the moment about whether the digital part of what I do is a complete red herring. Mm. I'm having conversations with the with the clients that I've, you know, I'm here to help you build a digital strategy. But what we're actually talking about is opening your eyes up to almost everything that's outside of your four walls and how that manifests itself within your business and organizational strategy so how do we start to make those steps towards organizations really exploring what digital means but Mm. you know what it doesn't mean as well what what how how do we sort of start that conversation do you think I think it probably comes down to those different definitions or those different applications of digital. So it it might be just a simple exercise that organizations get to map to say, okay, when we're talking about digital here, what's the case with digital skills? What's the case with digital processes? What's the case with digital tools? And kind of being able to at least identify or start to develop one of those areas in order to then maybe build enough confidence, understanding, experience to then maybe play around with other types or interpretations of digital if you like I mean in a way it's really similar to the the diversity challenge in our sector like people go oh how do we become more diverse like that's that's a huge unanswerable question you can start with establishing where the gaps are and then what needs to change and you can start with for example maybe looking at one 
underrepresented or minoritized group and looking at increasing representation from there and then working towards a broader and really inclusive, really intersectional diversity. It's the same with digital, like you kind of have to start somewhere. And if that's just implementing some more digital tools within your organization, great. If it's about creating processes or ways of working that are more digital, that's great as well. But it just it's not just this thing that you can tick at some point to say you've done it or that you do it. It's it's a, it's always going to be evolving as well because it's dependent on tech as well and tech evolution. So I think it's if I'd encourage organizations to start, I'd just say pick a digital something and start there and then just see how it goes from there and then start to explore the other interpretations of what digital means to you. It's funny though because I've had I've had at least four or five conversations in the last month where you think you're starting to open those that sort of window up and people start to go oh yeah I hadn't thought about that mm -hmm. and each conversation has ended with a and I do nearly need to make sure that my LinkedIn profile is <laughs> up to date and look better and and I think there is a certainly in the corporate world when you talk about digital I had this frustration when I came out of the corporate world and started looking at jobs and what I wanted to do all of those heads of digital, digital director, all those sorts of roles are all about marketing, all of them. You know, they don't, they don't say that on the tin. If you wanted a head of digital marketing, just go and advertise for it because there are people out there that can do that. Mm -hmm. If you want to holistically look at the state of your organization from the technology to the skills to the way that manifests itself within the organization and outside, that's yeah. a different job. That's a different set of skills. Yeah, I have this conversation in fundraising all the time. People always say, oh, well, we want to do more digital fundraising. It's like, that's not the question. The question to ask is, what's the best channel to reach our audiences? What's the best channel to tell our stories? Like digital is not the answer. It's the process or the thing that unlocks the actual thing that you're trying to do, which is raise funds or communicate more effectively or connect people to a service that they need. That's at the core of it. So yeah, I completely agree with you on that. And now that you've got me thinking about it, I need to check if my LinkedIn profile is up to date. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Zoe and I are going to go away and think about rethink our business strategies because Zoe Amar at Digital and Paul Thomas Digital mm. are probably two organizations that are, are sort of, you know, making the question of, of what you always say, you know, if the digital strategy is done right, then the digital element of it falls away, right? right. So, yeah. so if you get it right, then we're not talking about digital marketing. We're just talking about marketing. We're not talking about yeah. digital skills. We're just talking about life skills and skills, right? So if yeah. you can drop it away from that, then maybe and Zoe and I need to rethink our, our businesses. I think that's so true with diversity as well. Like diversity does not become an issue when there is a representation of voices, a diversity of voices in the space. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting, those parallels between those two terms and how they've been co-opted by this sector to be turned into sort of things that they don't need to be. They are just something that's so much more than what they've been boiled down to being something that we do or something that we don't. And also not to blow it wide open, but an expectation as well, because yeah. as, a, as an employee, as certainly as, you know, as young people that I know going into the workplace, they don't necessarily, or maybe they do, maybe they do want to see you. I have, you know, this organization has a diversity policy. This organization yeah. is digital, but they'll just walk in expecting those things to be the case. Yeah. Which is, I think, why a lot of younger professionals like me, like some of my peers did walk into organizations and have walked, <laughs> walked out, straight and out again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because because that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Exactly <laughs> so let's talk about that a, a bit more, because you and I were discussing diversity and in inclusion a, a, a bit before we started the interview. And obviously it's such 
a key important challenge for the sector right now particularly as we look to rebuild Mm. so how can we improve diversity across the sector I mean it's funny because I'm a very holistic person but quotas and targets work like I just think we need to be really serious about this they cut through the unconscious bias of people going oh well I think I'm diversifying what we're doing or I think I'm being more inclusive I really do think that organizations need to get quite serious with some quotas and targets because that's the only way that we can really start to protect this intention and start to action it in a particular way so I really want organizations to think about that but on other levels I think there's there's various touch points that can make or break an organization when it comes to how it improves its diversity. The first, of course, being around recruitment. There's a lot that I've written about in terms of recruitment and various inclusive recruitment practices and guides, but things like not requesting to have degree level education, not stating the salary. You know, there's so many practices that unfortunately fall into bad habits that people still do despite the fact that there's plenty of evidence that shows that it increases discrimination especially for women and minoritized people so it's like okay great so please stop doing that and then I think there's probably about the question of layering it so one of the things that we've been working at at Emergency Exit Arts has been diversifying the organization the way that we've been doing that is we've been doing that on multiple levels so the first thing we did was create a much more inclusive recruitment practice for our board which brought us five new incredible trustees that we never would have attracted if we'd not put some of these steps in place we've been looking at how we diversify the membership in terms of we are currently constituted as a membership organization so how we embed them across the organization from trustee level to executives to staff to freelance we've been putting more stuff in place on a staff level as well to make sure that we're using positive discrimination to be honest in recruitment practices to make sure that we're boosting the number of people from different backgrounds across our teams so I think you have to layer it you have to sort of you have to be able to implement some of this practice in various parts of the organization otherwise it doesn't really embed or feed itself through the culture of the entire place so you know, yes, diversifying or looking at board is really important, but it's not going to be enough to change the feeling on the ground with the staff. So I think it's really important that people think about how they layer their interventions in terms of diversity. And then it comes back to, I think, what I said with the digital point and what we talked about earlier. So be really clear about what, quote, diversity you're looking at. Is it about increasing representation from uh, minoritized groups? Is it about increasing representation from disabled people? Is it about increasing representation from geographically, age? You know, there's so many different factors that come into diversifying that, that people need to start somewhere with that, focus in and then start to look at other ones once you've started to achieve some of those quotas or those targets. So those are probably the top things. But I mean, I think one of the things we were saying, Zoe, as well, is from a leadership perspective, people just need to speak up. Like everything that's happened with hashtag not not just NCBO, what a moment for our sector. And I feel like I saw so little participation from leaders in terms of actually talking about how that might change or impact on what they do in their organizations that was extremely disappointing and it feels like yes people are tired at the moment yes we're in a really difficult situation but unless we fix that the sector's not going to survive to even deal with the fallout of this because if we're you know bullying all of our staff out of things that we're going to have no one left to sort things out so I really think that is super important and just showing a strong active leadership online and again digital has enabled a beautiful way of doing this because 
we can log on online, we can make our views heard, we can write blogs, we can tweet about things. And yes, there are different scales of social transformation in the world. Yes, maybe a tweet isn't as powerful as writing to your MP. But I think in this case, showing that proactive leadership online in that way could do a great deal to support that movement and to change things. And I just don't think we saw enough of that. I absolutely agree with that. I think leaders out there need to understand that no one is expecting them to have all the answers on this I wonder whether there's a kind of fear almost around having the 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 conversation but you're so right that what we all need to do now is to lean into these difficult conversations otherwise how is progress going to happen around diversity or digital and what the business model of the charity of the future looks like if we don't take the opportunity to talk about this stuff even when it's uncomfortable nothing is going to change is it absolutely yeah i would rather and i think everyone would rather see organizations or leaders say do you know what that was a mistake on my part or I didn't take action at the time. Let me talk to you about what actions I'm going to take now. It's amazing how quickly people will forgive (laughs) and forget when people adopt that. Yet there seems to be this reticence to take that kind of ownership, show that humility, (laughs) show that regret or show that remorse or guilt, even though that's all people are really crying out for. All people are crying out for is a bit of acknowledgement that things did not go right the first time. Yeah, there just seems to be... A real issue with this at the moment it seems to be a really sore spot in our sector I don't really know how to get past it it feels like a really strange thing to try and unpack I think it, it is and I've been pondering how we define it and I mean I can only speak from my perspective as a half Chinese woman working in the sector and I think if you are someone who is different for want of a better expression, yeah. um, that validation of experiences is so important, isn't it? So yeah. to hear from other people, this shouldn't be this way and we want to change it and we don't know exactly how we're going to change it, but just that this shouldn't be happening and we need to make things better. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know how we can all move forward as a sector unless we're all in agreement on the things that that need to change yeah absolutely and it's not like there aren't resources out there you know there are so many campaigners and organizers out there charity so white not just ncvo show the salary non-grads welcome you know all of these people are just ordinary people who are also trying to hold down their day jobs in the sector who are collectively developing resources knowledge a shared space for leaders to come to to find out more and to start to action things but again people are not using it and and I'm sort of like I spend my whole life kind of sharing particular resources like well look here and there's this great charity speakers website for the umpteenth time that I see a completely white conference or you know there's this talk about how to well there's this blog about inclusive recruitment and it's just it's all out there I just wish people would take a more proactive approach because it would make all of those campaigners and organizers jobs much easier and the focus could then become on how all of those campaigns really start to work together to make some more systematic change in the sector as well whereas at the moment it is hard because they're all trying to do their own thing totally acknowledging and supporting each other I think within the ecosystem but still unable to get past some of the individual barriers for each of those different causes that 
a bit more leadership within the sector could overcome so that they could then pull that energy into the next stage of those campaigns. So I think that's just so important. So, you know, if there are any leaders listening to this now, please just go familiarize yourself with those campaigns, with those organizations, those organizers, because there's so much already that they've gathered in terms of resources that you can start to implement in your organization straight away. I think that's great advice. Absolutely. So taking advantage of the resources that are out there and I guess also talking to younger people who are just coming up the ladder mm-hmm. I mean the people that I, I worry about the most are you know if you're a 25 year old amazing fundraiser from a Bain background in the sector you know exactly. are you looking at this stuff and thinking is there a place for me here am I welcome am I going to be supported in my career ambitions and and these are the people we, we really need to be opening the doors to and helping mentor and guide them so that the sector can help them fulfill their potential yeah I couldn't agree more and you know we we start to risk opening up a space that's almost like a trust pilot of whether someone somewhere is a good place to work or not and that kind of damage to a brand of a charity is is going to be it's not going to be able to be repairable. So I think organizations are really, the the time is now and the crux is now as to whether people are going to tolerate this anymore or not. So you have to start acting yesterday, but today is good enough. So maybe just start now. literally at the end of this podcast Donna that was amazing thank you I could talk to you for for hours I wish we had longer but I've I've learned so much from this conversation so thank you so much thanks for thanks for making such an awesome podcast and I'm so thrilled to be here thank you both thank you to Donna for a great discussion Dana has such a wide range of experience, which always makes for a great conversation. I think we genuinely could have talked to her all afternoon. Zoe, any major takeaways from the discussion for you? Yeah, there was so much there, wasn't there? Lots of really, I think, important stuff about how leaders across the charity sector, regardless of their background or their perspective, need to get involved in the conversation about diversity if things are going to, to change. In fact, I think it's an essential prerequisite so I'm so pleased that Donna raised that point yeah and I really enjoyed the points around the sort of the varying definitions of digital across sectors and organizations and what it actually means and also the point about picking something and just getting started she said um, pick a digital something and just get on with it you know and I think it can be quite easy for organizations and particularly leaders of organizations who don't have confidence in in, in digital what digital actually means to you know, they hide behind sort of indecision and hesitation and the fear of doing anything means that they don't do anything so to carry on the easter commentary you don't have to put all your eggs in one basket but you do have to put an egg in a basket and i think that was a really good point well made and this regular spot on books and music we need to go into we both bought or received clara and the sun by kazuo ishiguru over the easter easter break and i think you finished it zoe but i've only just started it so we'll play catch up on that and review it in a couple of weeks Oh, definitely. Yeah, you're in for a real treat without giving away too many spoilers. It is a bit of an emotional roller coaster. So I'm looking forward to doing a bit of discussion about it uh, once you've read it. That'd be great. I will get on with it. One of my um, New Year's resolutions, if I make any, was to to read more this year. And I'm successfully hitting that mark. I've, I've done at least a book, if not two books a month so far. So I'm quite pleased with myself. But I said I was reading something else. And I was reading The Rules of Civility by Amor Tals, who wrote A Gentleman in Moscow, which is just one of my favourite books ever. And I really enjoyed this book. It was um, it gave me severe wonderlust, though, because it's set in the New York of the 1930s, 1938 in particular. 
And that sort of era of jazz and freedom within New York just made me want to get on a plane and, and go somewhere. Also wanted to recommend, because I'm listening to it a lot, an artist called Japanese Breakfast, who has a new album coming out this year, but an album in 2017 called Soft Sounds from Another Planet. And I think you'd like it, Zoe, particularly with the new stuff. She's heading into a more sort of pop vein. And we also had a discussion uh, just before Easter about Jesse Ware. Uh, I think I made an introduction to the Jesse Ware album to you and we were talking disco and all things, all things disco. Yes, I think we both discussed how um, we were big fans of their podcast, Table Manners. And yeah, I absolutely love the album as well. I think it's great, really lifts the spirits. And talking of podcasts... You had a podcast that you wanted to, to share with us that you'd listen to as well, um, Diary of the CEO. Yes, um, as, as I mentioned, I seem to be developing a niche in recommending content about sports when actually I know very little about sport. I think it's the issues around leadership and, and management and how athletes recover as, as well that I've always found really fascinating, the kind of psychology of it all. And this was a brilliant interview on a podcast called Diary of the CEO, which is hosted by Stephen Bartlett, who I think is ex-social chain. And it was an interview with Rio Ferdinand about his experience at Manchester United and what he thought of Alex Ferguson's leadership style which turned out to be more nuanced than perhaps I had appreciated particularly from some of the hairdryer anecdotes Uh, so it's really worth listening to. I will dig that out as a major fan of sports podcasts I think that will be an interesting one and uh, also as an Arsenal fan a growing respect that was never there for Alex Ferguson and his leadership style certainly something that's missing from the game today the way he the way he operated and the way that team was run so thank you for listening to episode three of season three we'll be back next week with another episode as usual please send us your feedback we'd love to hear about anything that you feel you'll do differently after hearing from any of our speakers from the series you can share your plans ideas or questions with us on twitter where it starts at the top so at starts at the top one and you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week see you next week